0: So the Midrash is a discipline of Judaism, Jewish study, or a discipline of Torah study. In other words, the Torah itself has various different parts to it, can be subdivided into various different parts. So one section of Torah or Jewish scholarship is the Midrash, maybe you call it a genre if you want to use a um, musical term. So the word Midrash comes from the word Drash, Drash or up. Drash means to expound or to elucidate, to explain something. Drash in Judaism is always when a person expounds or elucidates on the word's is when a person expounds or elucidates on the words of the Torah, or the words of the the Torah, meaning the five books of Moses, or the words of the scripture, meaning the Tanakh. So when someone expounds or elucidates on those words, that is called a drash. Now, early teachings of drash were compiled into books. And those books of drash, drash is the subject is called Drash. The books of Drash are called Midrash. So the name Midrash is generally given only for works of Drash that were either compiled, written, or based on teachings, maybe written later. Either they were written during the late second temple period Um, all the way through to the what's called the Gaonic period from about the year 0 till about the year 1000. So it's either books that were compiled, written during that period from about the year 0 to about 1000 or it's books that were perhaps compiled later but made of teachings from that period, put together from existing teachings from that period. So Technically, the word midrash would be a term for books of drash, and again, drash elucidating or expounding on the Torah or Tanakh on Scripture, the our Hebrew scriptures, and uh, it would be generally works that were either written or based on teachings from this period, going from about the year zero to about the year a thousand covering the Mishnaic and Talmudic period, as well as covering the Gaonic period. One day I hope to do a class on the chronology of Judaism. And so I have that on my list of classes to do already. So we could talk about the various periods in Jewish history. So today, though, the term Midrash... So while technically the term Midrash is a term used for books of drash that elucidate or expound on the Torah... Today, the term Midrash is often used as a general term for all non-halachic works, all non-halachic works from that time period, from about zero to a thousand, even if they are not te- technically drush. So books of history, or books of inspirational teachings, or books of, um, of character development, are generally referred to, or mystical books are often referred to as midrash, if they are not halacha or Jewish law, from that period of about zero to a thousand. Now it can be a little confusing, because while on the one hand we use the term midrash to refer to just about all non-halachic works from this period, from the, uh, this period of about zero to a thousand, There are actually halachic works of drash, drash meaning elucidating or explaining the Torah that are based on Jewish law and focused on halacha or Jewish law. And they are also referred to as midrash, which is really the correct technical use of the term. They are books of drash, books that elucidate and explain and expound on the Torah. So today, so that is the word Midrash, again, the technical term would be for any work from that period, from about zero to a thousand, that explains and elucidates the Torah or Tanakh, the scriptures, but it's often used for any work from that period that is non-halachic or doesn't involve the laws of the command speaks about other things, such as history, inspirational lessons, mystical lessons, and the like. So that's why it can be a little confusing, because it has multiple different meanings. Now, the word drash, right, which we said is kind of the term for this genre or this discipline within Judaism of explaining scripture, expanding and explaining scripture from that period, from the period of... from the period of about zero to a thousand, is also a term that is still used today. Um, But it's used today because the word drash means to elucidate or expound. So it's often used today for any inspirational-based Torah talk. But we'll only use the word midrash for actual books of drash or books of non-halacha from that period of about zero to a thousand, the word drash, which means to expound or elucidate, is used for any inspirational Torah speech, is often referred to in Hebrew as a drash, or drash would be the subject, or a drashat would be the noun, what you would call the speech, right? So a sermon, what in English we'd call a sermon, right, a religious inspi- religiously inspired speech, in um, Judaism, in Hebrew, is often referred to as drash or drasha, right? Drasha would be the speech. So that's so that's the way it's used today. Although technically, again, the term drash means to expound or elucidate on the Torah. Not every sermon or not every drasha today is expounding and elucidating the um, five books of Moses or the Tanakh. So what exactly does it mean to expound or elucidate the Torah? What is drash? The Zohar tells us um, that there are four different ways of studying the written Torah. The written Torah, the five books of Moses, which is the basis of Judaism. There are four ways to study it, and this has become the standard way when we split Torah into various disciplines. One of the ways we do it is by splitting it into these four groups, which are pshat, remez, drush, and sod. Pshat, remez, drush, and sod. And the acronym, if you take the first letter of each word, it spells parades. Pardes is an orchard in Hebrew. So the pshat is the basic meaning trying to understand the words exactly as they are written, explaining the words exactly as they are. We have some early works of Pshat going back 2,000 years. Most of the early works of Pshat were early translations. So early translations could often be referred to as Pshat. Tirgumim, uh, most classic is Unculus, right? Gives us the basic Translation of the Torah, so that you understand it, places where the Torah's words are cryptic, the translations will usually spell out exactly what it means. Now, there there have been, since there have been many, many works of pshat. Most works of pshat that we have are from the last, on scripture, are from the last thousand years. The most classic commentary of pshat, basic understanding of the Torah, is Rashi. We once did a class on Rashi. Rashi was written about 900 years ago. And now not always is the basic commentary, the basic understanding, the simple meaning of the words, not always is it so easy to find. Sometimes verses just don't read easily. They're written cryptically. What does it mean? Sometimes verses appear to contradict each other. What do they mean? So even understanding the basic meaning of the Torah often requires some in-depth analysis. It's not simple, right? We call it the simple meaning, but it's not really simple. It's the most basic meaning. It's its most straight, we could call it its most straightforward understanding. But often a straightforward understanding can involve some level of complexity because to take the words at face value, they often make no sense. So the pshat itself, trying to understand what exactly is the Torah trying to say on a most basic level, would often involve some deeper analysis to try to understand what exactly do these words mean. How do these apparently co- contradicting verses, how do, they re- how do you reconcile them? This would all be part of, psh- part of understanding its basic meaning. So that is the first way of studying the Torah, The way of Kshat. The second way of understanding the Torah is Remes. Remes is the hinted to meaning of the Torah. Hinted to meaning in the Torah, we know that every word in the Torah is there to teach us something. There is not a single extra word in the Torah. There isn't a single extra letter in the Torah. Every letter that the Torah taught us has a meaning. While it may appear sometimes... That the words are there, kind of a double reading, a double expression, are there just for um, the poetry of it, or just for linguistics. It's never there just for the sound of it. It's always there to teach us something. Every word teaches us something. Every single letter teaches us something. In the Torah. So the Rebbe then finds the deeper hint that can be found in every single word, in every single letter of the Torah. The third form of studying the Torah is Drush. Drush is a deeper meaning of the Torah, essentially working to decode the Torah. According to our tradition, The written word of the Torah was written in code. It's all the written Torah is written in code. And although it makes sense to read face value most of the time, not always, some, some parts are very cryptic, but most of it reads pretty straightforward most of the time, but it is actually written in code. And it's all code. So what you need is you need to have the keys to be able to decipher that code in order to be able to know what the Torah is really saying. Now we were given those keys. Our oral Torah, which is the oral teachings that God taught Moses before God gave him the written Torah. As we've mentioned in previous classes and the class we did on the oral Torah, the oral Torah was taught to Moses on Mount Sinai. The written Torah was written by Moses at the end of his life. 40 years later. So the Oral Torah was gradually taught over 40 years, but the bulk of it was taught at the beginning when he was on Mount Sinai. So the Oral Torah also included, when God dictated the written word to Moses, God taught Moses the keys to be able to decipher the code of the Torah. Those keys are, we have actually 13 keys to decipher the Excuse me, the halachot of the Torah, the halachic teachings of the Torah, shlosh esrei bido, and 32 keys to decipher the non halachic or angadic parts of the Torah. And so if you know those keys to decipher the Torah, and those keys are not simple, they're complex. If you know those keys to decipher the Torah, you can use those and you can that way read the Torah differently and see the meaning behind every word and every letter. But in through re- reading it through those lenses, through the lenses of those keys, you're able to decipher the Torah. That is the meaning of the word drush. To elucidate or expound the Torah is not just general elucidating or expounding, but it means in particular to decipher the Torah, the code of the Torah, through the keys that we were given to decipher the Torah. So that is drash. The fourth um, discipline of studying Torah is sod. Sod is secret or the mystical meaning of the Torah. The whole Torah can be read from a mystical perspective with a deeper mystical meaning, and that has its own rules of how we find the deeper mystical meaning. Much of it is based on our traditions, on our Kabbalah, or our traditions of the mystical teachings. So we have these four different ways that the Torah is understood. Pshat, The basic meaning, which isn't always simple. Sometimes it can be complex. But the basic meaning. Remez, the hinted meaning. Finding the meaning of every word, every letter. Drash, the (laughs) expounded or decoded meaning. Using, understanding the code of the Torah. Based on the keys that we were given to understand the code of the Torah. And so, the mystical meaning of the Torah. Now... When we use the term drash in the sense of midrash, we actually are using the latter three forms of understanding the Torah. So it's not necessarily limited just to the drash as decoding the Torah that we just spoke about, but it can actually be referring to remez, drush, or sod. It can be referring to either the Hinted meaning of the Torah, the decoded meaning of the Torah, or the mystical meaning of the Torah can all be included sometimes, can all be included within the word drush. And books of those interpretations, not the basic understanding of the Torah, not its basic understanding, but books of those interpretations of the Torah, or even later works of our scripture that are based on the Rebbe's understanding, the deeper meaning based on the drash decoding the Torah, or based on the sod, on the mystical meaning, those kind of books are referred to as midrash. Now, technically, any book of drash, any book of these three genres, really, Remes, drush, and sod, can be um, included in the term midrash. But as we mentioned, only books from the Mishnaic Talmudic or Gaonic period of Remes, Drush, and Sod, in other words, works from the years, from about the year zero to about the year a thousand, only those are generally referred to as the Midrash. Yes, Steve? Well, some, some of, well two things. One, afterwards, could you show us where all these books are in the bookcase library upstairs? Like some of this stuff, like I remember the story of like Sodom and Gomorrah, and then you know, you read in other books, and it talks about well, they were swimming across the river, and then the guys beat them up, and, and then they said, went to you know, took it to court, said the police shouldn't have beat me up, and they said, No, you have to pay the police because it took effort
1: and extra time for them to beat you up, and you should be happy for it. Excellent so questions, so excellent
0: questions. Excellent questions. So, regarding um, the books in our library, um, our library—I don't know if I could show you all the books, but I will talk a little bit about the various books in a moment. Um, where did the midrash come from? I'm going to touch on that also in a moment. Okay. So, the midrashim and the drash can be split into right. There's different ways you can split disciplines, so or subjects of the Torah. So. For now, we spoke about Pshat, Remez, Drush, and Sod. Four different ways of expounding or understanding and studying the Torah. But we can also look at it... We can also look at it from a different perspective. Torah can be split into two different categories. Halacha, which is the laws of the Torah, and agada which is essentially a term for everything that is not laws. So the laws of the Torah would be the rules of the 613 commandments. God gave us 613 commandments. The details of those rules would all be halacha, are all referred to as halacha, the laws. There are also later enacted laws that were made by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council of Judaism, such as the festivals of Hanukkah, and Purim, that came later, are not mentioned in the Torah, those are also included in Halacha, in the laws of the Torah. But then, there is... But then, in addition to the laws of the Torah, in addition to the laws of the Torah, there is also all the other teachings of the Torah, non-laws. And that includes the history, the stories, inspirational lessons, character development, mystical teachings about our relationship with the spiritual and our relationship with God. All those things are all lumped together in the term agada, or the non halachic parts of Torah. So, Midrash can refer to both halacha and. Agada, both the, the halachic parts of Torah and the non-halachic parts of Torah. Again, usually re- used to refer to books from this period of about zero to a thousand. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's a little bit confusing because drash means two things. It, gener- it technically means expounding or elucidating the Torah, usually through the forms of remez, drush, and so The hinted meaning, the decoded meaning, and the mystical meaning. So it means so it's the elucidating and understanding the Torah. So there can be midrashim of both halacha and non-halacha agada that are elucidating or expounding built on the words of the written Torah or built on the words of other books of our scripture. But then the term Midrash is also used to refer to all non-Halachic works from that same period, are also often referred to as Midrashim. So, we have Halachic Midrashim, which will be exclusively those that are used, that are written as Commentaries or expounding, explaining the written Torah, because of course there is only laws found in the Torah itself, nowhere else in Tanakh, nowhere else in Scripture. And then we have Agadic Midrashim, which ends up including both those that explain the Torah as well as other Agadic teachings that don't explain the words of the written Torah or the rest of Scripture, but are just standalone books on whatever subject it is from that period, are also often referred to as Midrash. So let's start with the Halachic Midrashim. So the Halachic Midrashim all come from laws, are all teaching laws of Judaism, laws of the 613 commandments. As Midrash, it would always be biblical law, or the laws from are that the laws that were given to Moses. Now we believe, as I touched on earlier, that first God taught Moses the 613 commandments and all the relevant laws associated with those commandments. He taught it to him on Mount Sinai orally. All he wrote for him were the 10 commandments in two tablets. Everything else was in Moses' head. Moses then spent 40 years teaching these laws to the people and God continued to expound or explain these laws to Moses during that period. At the very end of Moses' life, he wrote, God dictated to him the five books of Moses that we have, the Torah, five books of the Torah. And he wrote them down in the Torah scroll. So, but while he wrote those books down in the Torah scroll... that God said, those words, as we said, include all the laws, but they're written in code. So while it mentions each of the 613 commandments are mentioned explicitly in the Torah itself, the details of those commandments are mostly written in code. The only way to find those commandments in the written Torah is by by using the um, keys that God gave Moses to decipher the code, we can find most of those 613 commandments can be found in the Torah. So most of the laws halacha that we have are teachings that were taught to Moses before the Torah was even written. Moses taught it to our people. And we know that to be the halacha. We know that to be the law. But we can then go and find that law hinted to or alluded to in the code of the written Torah using these 13 keys. Sometimes when in doubt, when we lost, we, when our collective memory um, of the laws was confused or uncertain, and we were in doubt, so there was a debate as to the detail of a specific law, we can go back to the written Torah and we can use the keys to decode the Torah, and we can try to find what the law is in that particular scenario. So too, when we the law that God gave Moses did not directly address a new situation that has arises that has arisen throughout history, always no code of law can ever cover every possible scenario. There will always be new things that come up. And part of the role of judges, scholars, um, is going to always be in any legal system to apply existing law to new situations. So in order to do that, sometimes when there's a new law where a new question that wasn't addressed in the original teachings, they could look at the Torah using these keys to decode it, and they can find what the law should be in this particular situation. So the Halachic midrashim essentially explain and elucidate the Torah. And what they do is they explain every word and every letter. What is this word teaching? What is this letter teaching? Why is it in this order? What a what are we decoding over here? We use various, one key in the code is shava, where if it has, uses, the Torah uses the same word in two places, and in one place the details are clear, and in the other place the details are ambiguous, we apply the rules from the place where it used that word, where it's clear, we apply it to the other place where it's ambiguous, where the same word is used. That's one of the 13 principles. And another principle, for example, is if you have a general term in the Torah, and then the Torah then details it again, and then you have another general term in the Torah, and uh, sometimes you read the Torah and it doesn't, why would the Torah do that? The Torah says if you lose an item, if you lose a, uh, don- an ox, a donkey, a garment, or any lost item, why does it say that? Lose an item, ox, donkey, garment, any lost item. It say lose an item. Why does it need to give the examples and then repeat itself? So that is what we call a klal or klal, A general term, specific term, general term. That is coming to tell you that anything that is similar to those particular examples would be included and each example is coming to tell you additional rules that need to be included within this law but anything that doesn't isn't similar to one of these examples that were offered is not included in this law and exactly and that would help us find a biblical source for our tradition as to what exactly is included in this particular law of returning a lost object so that's just one example of how we would uh, how the drash would elucidate the Torah. So we have a number of books of Halacha of Jewish law that read that essentially serve are written as commentary on the Torah, um, decoding, basically decoding the Torah. There is Drash found throughout the Mishnah, which is the first kind of work of Jewish law throughout the Talmud the Jerusalem Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, throughout the Tosefta and other halachic works from that period. But we have books that are written as commentary on the Torah that cover the drash or the expounded understanding of each verse and its halachic meaning. Um, Among those works that we have, we have the Mechilta, which is on the book of Exodus. We have, which is actually this, the Mechilta itself has two different sections. uh, Mechilta of Rabbi Akiva and of Rabbi Ishmael. We have a book called Sifra, sometimes also called Torah Koanim, which is written on the book of Vayikra, Leviticus. We have the Sifri, which is written, written on the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. So those are some of the, those are the more, more, most prominent works that we have of Halachic Midrash. These are Halachic works that decode the Torah. Let me take questions. Bill. Um, How how, how many people were on this committee that made all these uh, codes explanations? And how were they selected? The codes come from God. They are part of our oral tradition going back to Moses. The keys to the code. Now, any scholar who knows the keys and understands them well, because they're not simple keys, they're complex. But any scholar who knows the keys and understands them well is able to take a shot at deciphering the Torah. And so over the years, we've, we've essentially deciphered the, all the, the entire Torah. We have these works that I just mentioned essentially spell out the entire deciphering of the Torah. Um, in more recent years, uh, there was a scholar who put together a... Um, encyclopedic work collecting from all the halachic drash of the entire Torah and um, kind of put together an encyclopedia that goes through the meaning based on all the drash that we have uh, of every kind of putting it all together in one place called Torah Shleim by Rabbi Kasher. Um, So there there are works that put this together, uh, but any scholar that understands these keys can... Can, can do this, again, uh, mostly it's taking existing law that we know from our oral tradition and finding it in its source. If we don't have existing law and we're unsure, we could also use the source to answer the question as to what the law should be. Yes, Carol? Well, the Torah, as we said, has many layers of meaning. The pshat, the basic meaning, such as Rashi, who's the classic commentary of pshat, um, who explains the basic meaning, um, that anyone can study. That's easy. Oh, but you could take something literally that's not meant to be taken. Really like it like an eye for an eye. Well, the basic meaning will clarify that it's not meant to be taken literally. In other words, basic meaning doesn't mean literal meaning. We don't believe the Torah was ever meant to be taken literally. That, literally, um, we never took the Torah literally. It was never intended that way. Um, but the basic meaning will give you a very basic reading of it, um, without trying to decode every word and every letter. Basic does not mean literal. Basic is not literal. Definitely not. The Torah does not. Was never written to be taken literally. And it doesn't make sense when you take it literally. Much of it doesn't make sense. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of cryptic parts that just don't read. Why did God um, put things in code? Why not? That's a very good question. Why did God put it in code? Uh, Why didn't He write it all down? Why didn't we get it all written, spelled out? Why did we get it all written, spelled out? Um, So there are a number of answers given as to why God did that. Um, One one answer is that the Torah was not supposed to just be a written book that somebody can find and open, but rather and study on their own. Um, Kind of like the way the Mormons kind of found the Book of Mormon, study it and read it. But it's rather a living work. In other words, it's meant to be taught and kept by living people. And it has been. Since the day it was given, over 3,000 years, it's always been a living work. We don't just open the book and start studying. We teach it from generation to generation to generation. We pass it on in each generation. And so it's not what God did not want that it should just be a book you can open and start studying on your own and try to figure it out. Because when you do that, you're going to end up corrupting it. So he therefore rather made it cryptic, gave most of the teachings orally, so that we would need to be live scholars studying generation after generation to keep it going. It seems like I don't know, when you explained it now, I've heard it explained before, but when you explained it this morning, for some reason I thought about Einstein and how his whole spirituality was numbers, geometrics, ge- geometry and, and everything, and, and code. And and it seems like this got God is it is code. It's There's a lot of code, yes. Our, our whole world works on code. So would, that, would that give us an insight into, his es- into God's essence? Yes, because yes. Everything is code. Key. Everything is code. Our whole world is code. We believe that the universe is code in Kabbalah. Uh, but the Torah is written in code as well with many layers. That's yes. the key. There's many layers of meaning. Okay. <laughs> so that is the Halachic Midrashim. Let's move on and talk about the Agadic Midrashim. So most Midrash focuses not on the halacha, not on the law. In fact, most books of law that we have from this period of about 0 to 1,000 are books written not as commentary on the Torah, but written by subject. Most notably, the Mishnah, the first work of our oral teachings, the Tosefta, which is a more expanded version of the Mishnah, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, and we've done a number of classes on these. On the, we did a class on the Mishnah and a class on the Babylonian Talmud. Um, so a lot of the works that were written in Halacha, Jewish law, were not written as um, works to decode the written Torah, but were rather written as works to, as, as laws based on subject, written by subject, standalone books. Most works of Midrash, commentary elucidating the Torah, are Agadic or non-Halachic. And there are many works that include both. In other words, they'll touch on both the Halachic meanings and the non-Halachic, the Agadic meanings as well. Um, As I mentioned earlier, the term midrash is often used for books from this period of about zero to a thousand that are non-halachic, that are agadic, even if they're not written as commentaries on the Torah, even if they're not written to elucidate and explain the Torah. So agadah is a term that includes anything in Judaism, anything in Torah that is not halacha, that is not laws. So would it include history? Of course, our Jewish history is a very important part of Judaism. It would include life lessons, how to live life, character development, character building. It would include theology, our understanding of the philosophy of Judaism. It would include mysticism, our relationship with spirituality, with the Torah, with God. So it includes essentially any part of Torah that is not halacha. So agada. In the strictest term of use of the word of the word drash, which means to actually elucidate and expound on the Torah, it uses 32 keys to decode the Torah. The Halachic rules, keys to decode the Torah, there are 13 keys. For Agada, there are 32 keys. Most of the time, Agada employs these rules. Now, where does the agada come from? So, Agada can come from various different places. Some of the Agada is part of the oral tradition that God taught us from Moses. Some of the Agada, some of the Agada is simply elucidating the verses. Sometimes we'll take the oral tradition and we'll find it alluded to in the verses by decoding them. Sometimes we will decode the verses on our own and find hidden gems that, from decoding these verses, deeper meanings of the verses. Sometimes, though, the teachings, there are inspirational teachings that were developed by the author, by whoever taught this teaching, and they're not necessarily meant as the true meaning of that verse of Scripture. It's rather an inspirational teaching for which we can find a basis in scripture, an inspirational teaching based on the ideas of Judaism uh, that uh, that the author themselves came up with. And they found, or maybe another scholar found, a basis for it in the Torah itself. Found a place in Torah where it alludes to it. Not necessarily was that the intent of the original Author, the God, the author of the Torah itself. So it can include any of those. It can include traditions that are part of our old tradition. It can include things that, that we find um, de- uh, alluded to when we decode the Torah. It can find t- we can find teachings that we actually read by decode, discovered by decoding the Torah. And it can be teachings that are inspirational. But not necessarily um, from not necessarily the intent, the original intent of the Torah. But simply, we find what we call an asmachta, a basis for it in the Torah. But they're in standalone, really standalone, inspirational teachings. Agada includes a lot of inspirational teachings. It also includes a lot of stories and information about the stories of the Torah or other stories that may have happened. And now, as Steve pointed out earlier, some of those stories just give you a deeper understanding of the event, of how the event happened. Some of those stories include information that is extremely unrealistic. Unrealistic! And there's a lot of these stories that are very, very unrealistic, found throughout the Midrashim, Throughout Agada, um, in all sorts of both in Midrashim and in other sources, Talmudic sources and other places, there are many stories that are totally unrealistic. Now, sometimes we mean those stories were meant to be taken at face value. Usually, if it's referring to a particular miracle, we're explaining the miracle of the splitting of the sea, and we add details to it. It may be unrealistic, but the truth is, the splitting of the sea is unrealistic as well. But we believe God performed the miracle, and we believe that it happened as is. Sometimes, though, they're not intended to explain any particular miracle. And so then they're not meant to be taken at face value. They're rather taught to us to give us a deeper understanding, to give us a deeper lesson. And the Midrash, or the Agadic teachings in the Midrashim, as well as the Agadic teachings in the Talmud and in other. Jewish works, are often not meant to be taken at face value, but are meant to be understood as a metaphor with a deeper meaning and a deeper understanding for us to understand, for us to teach. And it's important to see the deeper understanding. We did a class a little while ago where we spoke about Agada, and we asked the class was, is every story in the Torah true? Right? We did a class on that as to whether every detail in the Torah is true, and then we spoke about the Agadic stories, and as to whether they are true or not. Um, Again, if they're meant to be, what we explained then was that, if they're unrealistic, but they're meant to explain a particular miracle, then we believe they are true, but if they're not meant to explain a particular miracle, but just kind of threw in an unrealistic story, then we generally would assume that they are a metaphor. Not always can we know definitively if the story is true or isn't true. And the truth is, it doesn't always matter. What does matter is the lessons that we take from those stories. And the inspiration, the lessons that we take from the stories. And we spoke about this in greater detail when we did that class about whether the words of the Torah is true. So, we have a number, many, many Midrashim that are either Midrashim of agada or Midrashim that include both Halacha and Agada. Most Midrashim, now most Halachic Midrashim that we spoke about earlier, the Mechilta, Sifra, Sifri, most of them are very early in Jewish history. Most of them were written about the year 0 to 200. Most of the to 300. Most of the non-Halachic Midrashim come from later, Come from about the year 300 and onwards. Most of them were compiled later, although many of the teachings are ancient. Many of the teachings will quote scholars from the Mishnaic period, which is about 0 to 200, or even before that. So while the teachings may be ancient, most of them were written later, and many of the teachings do indeed come from later. Now we have many, many works of Agadic Midrashim. There was at one point many more Agadic Midrashim that didn't survive. It's amazing that we have hundreds and hundreds of works that survived, some of them very large, that survived from 1500, 2000 years ago. That's amazing. There was no printing then, it's all survived. Handwritten works, and we don't have originals from them because paper parchment doesn't last that long. We don't have our oldest um, our oldest Jewish uh, paper books come from about thirteen hundred come from about um, thirteen hundred years ago. Um, that's the oldest that we actually have existing and very little we have from that. Most of it's copies of copies of copies. But it's amazing that we have so much that did survive. But we do know there was a lot more because we have other books that quote earlier books that we don't have anymore. And there are hundreds of books that are quoted that we don't have the originals um, from this period of zero to a thousand, which is, there aren't a lot of books from that period at all that exist anywhere. Uh, But in Judaism, we have hundreds of such books that still exist, many of them being Midrashim. So, some of our Midrashim from this period are written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the spoken language at the time. Most Jewish works written from about the year 300 to 200 and onwards till about the year 700 a little bit after the Arab conquest when most Jews spoke Aramaic most works written in that about 400 year period are written in Aramaic that's when the Babylonian Talmud was written it's written in Aramaic the Jerusalem Talmud was written and so most works from that period are written in Aramaic um, but there are other Midrashim from earlier or later that are written in Hebrew so the most popular comprehensive work of Midrash is the Midrash Rabbah. Midrash Rabbah is made up of five different books, one on each book of the Torah, Bereshit, Genesis, Shemot, Exodus, Ayikra, Leviticus, Pamidbar, Numbers, and Devarim Deuteronomy. So it's five different works. We believe that each of those five books were written, were compiled and put together in different places and different times. So although the style is similar, they're actually each book, Is different. Um, And they were all put together, um, Midrash Rabbah, Bereshit Rabbah, the book on Genesis, is thought to be quite a bit older than the others, but they're all put together about a thousand years ago. They are mostly in Aramaic, and they are the largest, most comprehensive, popular work of um, Midrash. We do have another, much larger, and more comprehensive book of Midrash that was written in Yemen. And this was popular among Yemenite Jews, use this, but because Yemen was so far removed from most other Jewish communities, and there was communication, but minimal communication between Yemenite Jews and other communities, so while they had it funny that it tends to happen that isolated communities know about everybody else, but you don't know about, but everybody else doesn't know about them. And that's true always throughout history. Isolated countries, nobody knows about them, but they know about everyone else. So the Yemenite community had all the works, all the books written by Jews around the world. But Jews around the world did not have Yemenite books. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that European Jews discovered the Midrash Haggadah, the, the Yemenite. Midrash, which today um, is widely available, the Midrash Haggadah um, from Yemen. Other classic Midrashim um, are that, um, f- other classic Midrashim are Ra- Midrash Rabbi Tanhuma, written by a fellow called Midrash called Rabbi Tanhuma, Tana Deve Elial, the teachings of Elijah which we believe were taught by Elijah, um, this book called Ptikta, and there's a number of many, many other midrashim. There are also, those are midrashim that are written as commentary on the Torah, elucidating the Torah, kind of the, the technical use of the term midrash. There are also other works of Agadah from that period that are not really midrash, they're not written as commentaries on the Torah, as elucidating the Torah, but they're nevertheless referred to as Midrashim. Examples are Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer and Sefer HaYashar, which are both books of Jewish history written from that period. We also have mystical books from that period that are not technically Midrash, but often lumped in together. One example is The Zohar, which is written as a it's a mystical work, uh, written in the early Talmudic period, based on the teachings mostly of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai uh, um, a Mishnaic era sage. He once did a class on the Zohar, and it is written as a commentary on the Torah. It actually does explain the Torah in detail. So today, we have many midrashim. Many midrashim have been printed. There are what we call the major midrashim, large works, midrash Rabba, which is a five-volume work in Aramaic. We have midrash Tanchuma, which is a large collection. We have many other books of midrash. We also have, there were also um, later midrashim that were put together. In other words, in the medieval period, from about the year 1000 to about the year 1500, during those 500 years or so, there were a number of um, people who gathered together midrashim. Generally, they were darshanim, speak, um, preachers. There were Jewish preachers that would go around and speak, and they were popular preachers. And so they like to quote from the midrashim. So they often put together books of midrash. And many of these books, and probably the most famous of this is Yalkut. Shimoni, put together by Rabbi Shimon Hadarshan in the 1300s. And these kinds. there's another book called Yaakod HaRuveni, but from Ruven Hadarshan, and there's a number of other Yaakod HaMachiri, and there's a number of other of these later collections of Midrash that were put together during the medieval period, from about the year 1000 to about the year 1500. Most of these books include many Midrashim that we don't have. In other words, they collected from Midrashim that they had, because they were presumably collectors, that had spent their time collecting manuscripts of Midrashim, and many of their manuscripts didn't survive. Their collections became popular and survived and were eventually printed, but the manuscripts they used often didn't survive, and so Yaakut Shimoni, the most popular or most um, classic, of these collections of midrashim written later includes a large percentage of its quote of the midrashim that it quotes. Actually, we don't have in any or we don't have the original books of midrash that he got it from that he quoted it from. We believe that he had a source for each thing that he wrote, but we just like we, like I've mentioned earlier, we did we lost a lot of the midrashim. So today we have many many midrashim. Um, we have well over. 200 books of Midrash that did survive. So 200 books. Some of them are very small. Some of them are extremely short. Um, most of them are short. Some of them are fairly large. Um, so, but together they make up the basis of the commentary on the Torah. Um, and later classic commentaries like Rashi, like Ramban, Ramosha, Ben Nachman, Ibn Ezra, and many others use the Midrashim in order to explain the Torah itself. They also serve as the basis of our history, on the basis of our understanding of our early history. They also serve as the basis of Jewish inspirational teachings and character development and character building, which has always been a big part of Judaism. We have many books written on character development and character building. They also serve as the basis of the mystical side of Judaism. So today, thankfully, everything has been printed. You can get it all in print. So you can get much of it today online. Well, just about all midrashim and all classical works of Judaism are available today even online. You don't even need the book itself. And today, most major midrashim have been translated into English where anyone can read them. Anyone is able to study them. Um, you can purchase books, um, art scroll publications has translated a number of midrashim. Feldheim, other, um, other publishers have translated various books of Midrash, today most of the works of Midrash are available in English, and um, you can even get online, there's a project called Sefaria, um, which includes many classical works of Judaism, and many of them have translations, although it's a, like Wikipedia, it's a, um, what do you call it, collaborative effort, so it's not always that reliable, Um, but a lot of it is now available online for free in English. So Midrash remains still today. It's part of our important part of Judaism. And it remains a way to uncover the teachings of the Torah. And many of the most important life lessons in our tradition can be found in our various Midrashim.